All right. Man, is everybody ramped up from all that sugar? Like, man, nothing better than giving kids sugar and then making them come to a church service. It's amazing, right? You can write us thank you letters later. We're just happy to serve your family however we can. Hey, thanks for being here. My name's Peter. Uh, I'm one of the guys here who gets to serve on staff as, as one of the pastors, and we're just grateful um, that you're here. If you're <clears throat> new and want to know a little more about Calvary, there's some ways online or connection cards, uh, grab one of us. And if you're newer, you're just part of our church and we got you in our database. If you're, if you're regularly part of Calvary Church, there's probably something you've heard about or will be hearing about ad nauseum. And, and we want you to get to the point where you're like, if I hear about this thing one more time, I'm going to throw something. Because maybe when you get to that point, you'll, you'll have heard it, right? Here's what I want you to hear about a ton, something that we're doing coming up this Thursday called our family dinner, right? Our family dinner. And here's the purpose of it. You should be getting a letter if we got you in our database. You've gotten an email probably already. Uh, but, but if we could, as leaders here at Calvary, we would love, literally, I, I did it this past week with some folks. We'd love to be able to sit down with you guys, every single person who calls Calvary their church home, and sit down with you over some awesome greasy eggs and bacon and really bad diner coffee. And we'd love to sit down with all of you and say, hey, here's where we as leaders just some things we're watching about Calvary and some things we're thinking about and some we're doing. What, what do you think about that? And just as importantly, if not more importantly, we'd love the chance to say to you, hey, we've all come through COVID. You know, we were doing some things before COVID, then we adjusted after COVID. And now after COVID, I mean, how are you doing? Do you have any questions about what we're doing as a church? Do you have any thoughts? And, and we just want to have a chance to listen to you. If we could, we would sit down with every single person at a diner and just check in and just listen. But that would be a lot of diners. And so what we're going to do is we're going to invite you to have dinner with us. And it's this Thursday from 6 to 7.30. 6 to 6.30 is the dinner time. Then from 6.30 to 7, we're going to just share a little bit of information about some, some things we're doing to try to serve you better and get some input on it, some things we're watching that we want to try to do better, get some input on it, and then just kind of open it up and say, hey, how are you, right? How, how can we serve you? How can we help you? What questions do you have about what's been going on that we can answer for you? What I promise you is, this is, we're not, this is not gonna be like a congregational meeting where we vote on whether to put green food coloring in the baptismal tank water or something, right? And we're not gonna sneak in any budget talk. God's been very gracious. It's literally just a chance to talk and to listen, and to share, and to rally together about what God might have for us. So I'd love for you to come. If you don't feel comfortable sitting down with other people at a meal, then I'd invite you to come to the 6.30, 7.30 part, which will be our discussion and dialogue. And I'm really excited about it, because God is doing some cool things at the church, and uh, we just want to all, as part of this body, rally around where he's shaping us and what, what he's doing in our midst. So uh, I look forward to that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into our sermon, um, and I'm going to do something a little different, right? I don't know. I, well, I do know. Probably this morning, there's going to be a lot of people uh, every Sunday who walk in here like, man, I don't know where I am in this whole Jesus deal and God deal, and then there's a lot of people who walk in here every Sunday who do have an understanding, and no matter where you are on that, we are just so glad that you're here. And so I'm going to pray, and if you're still processing through what you think about God and Jesus and all of that, then I do not want this to be an awkward time for you, but I do want to give you a minute as I guide other people in some prayers for you just to think. And then for those of you who do believe in God, I just want to, and Jesus, I just want to walk us through just a little bit of prayer, okay? And so uh, if you would, if you just close your eyes, 
Um, and let's pray together. I'd ask you first uh, just to think of something that you're grateful for God that he's done for you. What is one thing that God's done for you or helped you with that you're grateful for? And would you just, where you are in your heart, thank him for that. We have a Sunday with families dedicating kids and baptisms. Um, and will you just take a minute and just pray that uh, just the encouragement of people who are being baptized today, even though you don't know all their names, and the families who are dedicating their kids, that God will just continue to work in their lives as this is an exciting and great Sunday for them. And then will you pray that whatever God wants you to hear today, that he will open up your heart and that the Spirit will work and that his word will impact you. Will you just pray for God to speak to you today through his word? Father, thank you that we can bring <clears throat> these requests to you and you do say that your word doesn't return void and it accomplishes the purpose. And so I pray, God, as we open up your word and we talk about something that all of us go through, that your truth and your wisdom uh, will land on us, Father, that we will learn more about you and that our lives will be changed and redirected in some ways. And will you please work? Thanks for the amazing opportunity to celebrate, Father, what you're doing in people's lives and the joy and the excitement around that. And so, Father, uh, may we celebrate them well and bring glory to Jesus as we do that later through baptisms. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, this morning, what you missed in the first service is uh, several families up here on the stage dedicating their kids, right? Just wanting their kids to follow after Jesus. And for those parents, uh, what we hope is that their story here at our church will be a blessing and encouragement to them because there are going to come moments in their lives when if you've been a parent <clears throat> for more than like an hour right? You know that parenting is hard. That's why I'm becoming salt and pepper. That's why I'm becoming gray, right? All the, all the parenting wisdom and chaos of my life. If you've been a parent for a little bit, you know parenting's hard. And so we want to be able to be a community for those parents who dedicated their kids this morning and be a place for them to walk with them. And as their little babies were being dedicated, there's people in this, this community and this family of a church who've walked the road ahead of them, who can be of help and of resource to them. But despite all that, there's going to be times when they have some trials come up. We're about to baptize some people in the second service. They are going to get wet in some amazing Trumbull Public Works Department water, right? And we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done in their lives. But the reality for the people who we dunk this morning and baptize this morning is, man, there's still going to become moments that are challenging for them. And we want to be a church that when they face those times or they just see, need some encouragement, we can rally around them. And for the people who haven't dedicated their kids or haven't been baptized, if you're here, that's what we want to be for you. And we want to be that for people who aren't here. here. And the reality is this. It's not just the people who have dedicated their kids this morning or are being baptized this morning who face trials. Because every single one of us in the room, whether we believe in Jesus or not, every single one of us in the room is going to face a trial. Every single one of us in the room is going to have those moments that come that are curveballs, that create anxiety, that are unexpected and unknown and unforeseen, that weigh on you and navigate you and you don't really know what to do. We talked about trials two weeks ago because about 40 years after Jesus was 
murdered and then resurrected and then ascended up to heaven. About 40 years after that, there were a group of Christians who they were facing trials. And they were facing some circumstances that they were trying to weather and get through. And so Jesus' stepbrother, a guy named James, wrote a letter to them. And it's the letter of James that you have in your Bible and the New Testament. And he wanted to give them guidance of people who believe the right things. He wanted to give them guidance about how they could not just believe the right things, but how they could also do the right things. And what we do at Calvary is we open up a book of the Bible and we walk through it, kind of paragraph to paragraph. And we started that a couple of weeks ago in the book of James, and we're going to walk through that. And in the book of James, James is going to discuss all sorts of things that these Christians were facing. He's going to give instructions about people who believe the right things. What do they do when God changes your plans and you don't know what's coming? How, how do they talk to each other with words that are kind? What particular group of people in our culture and our society does God want people who believe the right things to do the right things in order to care for? And there's going to be a whole list of topics that Jesus' stepbrother is going to write to people about how they just shouldn't believe the right things, but how they should do the right things. And the very first kind of box of issues that he talks about to these people is how they can do the right things when they encounter trials, when they encounter challenges. <clears throat> he, he said that in the first few verses, right, in the Encouragement is this, when you face a hard time, we don't have to flounder about what to do. We don't have to try to guess about some ways to work through that because God has given us some instructions about what to do. So last week, we, two weeks ago, we kicked off James. We kind of worked through some things, and here's what we read. We read verses <clears throat> excuse me, 1 through 8 or so talking about trials. And James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, these guys, we said, these were Jewish Christians, right? So James is writing to Christians who are also Jewish, facing challenges. And he says this, Greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. From those verses two weeks ago, we pulled two ways to rightly navigate trials. And the first thing we saw about how to rightly navigate a trial was this. We talked about know that God is working in today's trial to make you who he wants you to be. The second principle and truth we pulled from that is when you face a trial, seek wisdom from God. And then today, James is going to continue and he's going to give about three or four other ways for people who believe the right things to do the right things and rightly navigate trials. And so let's kind of keep going and unpack it. If you've got a Bible, you can open them up. Uh, if you need one, we've got some out back. If you've got an out back, like where's out back? <laughs> like I don't want you wandering around the back of the church looking for a Bible. Though we've got Bibles on the little table out there on the way out if you need a Bible. But if you've got a device, you can open up. We're going to be in James chapter 1, verses like... Uh, 9 through about um, 18 or so this morning. So here's where he starts in James chapter 1, verse 9. Let's think about the next way to properly navigate a trial. And he writes this. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, this lowly brother, what the group of people he's talking about are Christians in this church who are poor. Christians 
who are poor. What's really interesting about this church that he's writing to is a bunch of the people really were poor, but they weren't always poor. For most of these people at one time in their life, they had had the house, they had had the job, they'd been settled, they'd been filling the 401k and everything had been good for them, but there came a time that those people faced persecution, either persecution because of their race being Jewish or persecution because of their faith. And when they faced that persecution, an impact of that was meant they lost everything. They lost their homes. Many of them were sent to all different regions around the world, and they lost everything. These were a group that he first writes to of Christians who, for most of them at one time, they'd known what it like to have a little something, but now they don't have anything. And the trial that most commentators think the two groups that James is writing to that these people are facing are trials having to do with money. Well, they don't have it. And they're stressed, and they're anxious, and they're worried. Have you ever been there? Can you relate to that? I mean, I can, right? And so what does he write to these people? Well, here's what he tells them. Look, to the poor Christian, what I want you to do is I want you to boast in your exaltation, okay? So what he's saying is, look, you are poor now, but what I want you to remember is that one day as a Christian, when you see Jesus, there are literally all sorts of wonderful, good things that are waiting for you. You are an heir of God. You are God's child, and you are going to inherit that, and you're not going to have the struggles you have now. What he's saying is, look ahead. Look ahead. But then he doesn't just stop by talking to the poor Christian. He writes to another group of people, and he kind of says the game angle to this group of people. He talks now to a group of people, starting in verse 10, and he says, hey, let me talk to the rich. And the rich... What I want you to do is to boast in your humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, flowers of the grass. Flowers of the grass is referring to what my neighbor's lawns all look like. When I drive past my neighbor's lawns, they are green, They are like plush. They are vibrant. They look like a commercial for for Scott's Turf Guard or something. I just want to get out of my car and roll around on their grass because it looks so green and amazing. When you drive through my yard, well, well, you could drive through it. I might improve it. When you drive past my yard, it's green because I have weeds and clover and dandelion. And ain't no neighbor stopping to roll through the grass of my yard, right? This flowers of the grass... It's talking about that moment when grass is just the greenest, right? That time of year when someone's fertilized and kept it up, man, it is green and it's pretty. But what it says here is, look, but man, that's going to pass away. In this region of the world, in this time, that green grass often was only for weeks. And then it was gone. And it got crinkly and a little crunchy, and it wasn't there anymore. And and what James is saying to these people is, look, rich person, men who were facing some anxiety, maybe because they just wanted more. Maybe they were facing some trials because what they had, they started to see slip through their fingers. Maybe they were facing some trials because they had looked to money to be the thing that was going to make their life okay. And they'd had a lot of it. 
but their life still wasn't okay. And they looked to this thing to try to save them, and they were trying to put the pieces back together. And what James, Jesus' brother, is writing to them is, look, if you're stressed out because of what you have and you're losing or you don't have enough, you got to keep the long view in mind. Because whether you don't have money and it's causing you anxiety or whether you do have money and that's causing you anxiety, the reality is all of that is like this. It's like this. It's not all that there is. It's not the end of the story. What James is telling the poor person who doesn't think they have enough, he's saying, look, in light of eternity, it's all temporary. What James is telling the rich person who has a lot but who still has trials and anxiety, he's saying, look, in light of eternity, it's all temporary. And he's trying to rally them to that perspective and to that viewpoint into that prioritization. Have you ever gone with anybody to buy a used car? Anybody ever done that? I have. I know nothing about cars, but you know, I, I will not go buy one or even hear a person who's talking about the car. I've had people who are buying a car and they come back to you and they're like, bro, I found the best 25-year-old car. And you're like, really, why? He's like, no, it's the best car. Because man, this car, like you should listen to a stereo. Its stereo is amazing. It has Bluetooth. Its speakers are the highest quality. This 25-year-old car. So I'm like, it's the best car? Yeah, because of the stereo. And then I kind of would say to them as I see this car, well, what about all the oil under the car that's like the size of this baptism thing? Like, that doesn't seem so good. And they're like, no, but the stereo is great, right? And see, what they're doing is they're just focusing in with this myopic vision of one little piece of the story, but they're missing the larger picture. They're missing this larger thing that actually is more meaningful and more important because whether your car is leaking oil is a whole lot more important than whether your little stereo sounds cool playing your little hip-hop music or country music or whatever music, right? And, and what James is saying to these people is, guys, you're focusing on the wrong things. You're missing this larger more meaningful reality of what's waiting for you and what's in store. And he's trying to get them to that. What he's saying is, look, in the trials that you face, you got to remember there's an eternity beyond that trial. And don't become so focused on the now that you overlook the then. Don't become so focused on the now that you overlook the then. Here's what he's telling them and telling us. In today's trial... Remember eternity's reality. In today's trial, remember eternity's reality. Now, I know as soon as that one on the screen, some of you were like, Pfft. like, yeah, 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 eternity, it's church. Like, of course you're supposed to say that. Can we get something more practical and more helpful? Don't discard this just because you're in church. Don't discard this and don't avoid thinking about it and clinging to it just because it's what you think someone's supposed to say in church. Man, we need to reorient our thinking and our perspective in light of this. Because what I do so often in my life, I get focused on that. And there's this broad reality. Paul was a dude in the Bible. Man, he was beat up. He was arrested. He was shipwrecked. He was hungry. He was homeless. And through it all, all he kept thinking about was Jesus and eternity and that reality. And that drove and propelled and supported him through everything that he did. 
If you're going through a trial today because of money and it's creating anxiety, hey, I'm not dismissing that. I have laid awake at 4.50 in the morning stressing about money, looking at my little iPhone next to me thinking, man, I'm not supposed to get up for another hour and a half, not being able to go back to bed, laying there, just watching the ceiling fan, and freaking out. And it just, it just, and what I need to do and what we need to do and what you need to do is we need to understand, look, that's part of the story, but that's not the whole story. And there is a reality and a truth beyond that, and we need to focus on that. When we kicked off this series in James, what we said is that James, Jesus' stepbrother, in many ways is building on to a sermon that Jesus gave. When Jesus was here on earth, there was this one moment when he was on this hill, and there are all these people trying to figure out who he was and what he believed, and so he gave a talk. He gave a sermon on that hillside. And what James is doing is in many ways he's referring back to that and he's pulling things out of that. On the sermon on that hillside one time, you know what Jesus talked about? Anxiety because of money. And when James is writing this part, he's probably thinking back on that. He's probably like, look, remember when my brother tried to get you to think about that? I want you to think about that. So what did Jesus say that probably James is building out about anxiety and trials over money? I'm just going to read this to you. And I've read this passage a lot because you know how I know I've read a lot? Because the page comes out of my Bible because I've turned to it so much. <clears throat> and this is out of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 24. You know, again, whether you're Christian, not a Christian, if you just sometimes need some encouragement because your trial is money and you're worried about that, I'd encourage you to scribble that down. And here's what Jesus said. I'm just going to read it. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus is outside giving this talk. And there's probably little birds and little butterflies and little flowers. And then Jesus is, pro- is most likely looking around at birds. And so he uses that as an illustration. And he says this, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor they spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Now, I don't know about you, but when somebody tells you, hey, don't be anxious, that doesn't really help my anxiety. Does that, does that help you? If you come to somebody and said, I'm really worried, and they're like, oh, don't, don't worry. You're like, thanks, Bubba. That's not helpful, right? Like, like we need a context in which to not to worry. Just being told not to worry, it's like, bro, you got to give me something to step on. You got to give me a stable footing on which to stand. And Jesus does. And the very next line, he gives you and he gives me and he gives us the reason we shouldn't worry. And here it is. For the Gentiles, meaning the people who don't believe in God, seek after these things. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
What Jesus is saying is, hey, don't worry. And you don't need to worry because there is a God in heaven who is your Father who knows exactly what you need right now. And He is good enough and big enough to be able to provide that for you. And He takes care of the birds. And He loves you a whole lot more than the birdies. So don't worry. Because God loves you. And He knows exactly what's causing you worry that makes you stare at the ceiling fan at night. And He can take care of you. So, He then says, instead of worrying, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What, what, what Jesus is saying, right, what James is picking up on some points, we can worry about and freak out about money in the middle of trials, or we can try to serve God and seek God and seek his kingdom in the middle of trials, but it's really hard to do both. We can worry and freak out, or we can try to serve God and pursue his kingdom in the middle of trials, but it's really, really hard to do both. So this morning when Jesus is challenged, is, hey, but you know what I want you to think about? I want you to think about eternity's reality. What would it mean for you to press into seeking his kingdom further? Like, what did that really look like for you? If you believe in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, what would it mean for you today to seek first his kingdom? All the stuff you're worried about, look, I'm not minimizing your worry, but I'm saying you just leave it because you know who God is and you trust him. And then you press into how you can be about what he wants you to be about. Who can you care for? Who can you love? What does it mean for you to seek first his kingdom? The first thing that James tells people to do is to, in light of today's trial, which in this moment was about money, remember eternity's reality. And then he's going to move into a second way to navigate things. And I love this one. Because, man, this is so real. Because what James, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to get, he knows exactly how my tendencies are. He knows your tendencies. And so he's going to give this truth that's like, gum. Like, that's kind of how the story goes sometimes. And so here's what James then writes in verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In those verses, there's kind of two conversations. There's this conversation about, hey, when you're in a trial, the way you rightly navigate is you stand steadfast. And then there's this other conversation about this, like, this, this pathway, this workflow, this flow chart of how sin happens in our lives. And we have to read those two things together. And when we read those two things together, here's what we see. That James is saying, you remain steadfast in the middle of a trial, and the way in which you remain steadfast is by avoiding sin. He's writing to Christians in trials, and he's saying, hey, in the middle of the trial, you remain steadfast. And the way that you remain steadfast is you avoid sin. So, that's interesting. But the question becomes, well, why did he have to say that? 
Why did he have to use up his valuable ink and his cool little pen to put that on some papyrus? Why did James have to tell me and have to tell you and have to tell his readers, hey, when you're in a trial, don't sin? Why do you think he had to say that? I know. You're like, wait, oh no, am I supposed to answer? This is so awkward. I don't know what to do. I don't either. Why don't you go ahead and answer? Why do you think? Right? If you answer, you can get another free donut and coffee on your way out if you get it right. Okay? Why do you think James wrote to me and James wrote to you and says, hey, when you're going through something, be careful you don't sin. Why did he say that? Why did he have to say that? Go. Yes, go ahead. I don't know if y'all heard it, but if you heard in the back, you're like, Smith, the sermon's over. Just like, yeah, right? Amazing. Great answer. Thank you for sharing that, bro. That was awesome. Then what he said, if you didn't hear it, I'm going to try to summarize it, right? Which is perfect. You got it. Which is, when you're going through a trial and sometimes you don't have anybody, you're going to be tempted to do something. And what he shared, which is right, you're going to be tempted either to do something good or you're going to be tempted to do something bad. And that's exactly right. James wrote this because he knew that when you and I go through trials, you know what we have a temptation to do? We have a temptation to sin. Now, why do you think that's true? Now, you don't have to answer this part. I'll take it from here. Why do you think James says to you, hey, when you're in a trial, be careful, stand firm, because you're going to be tempted to sin. Why are we tempted to sin in the middle of a trial? Here's why. Because we want to get out of it. We want to get out of it. And sometimes the way in which we get out of it isn't right. There's a, a, an organization called Young Life, and throughout the country they have all these different camps. And, I mean, it is like top tier. It's like the Ritz-Carlton of camping, okay? And at one of their camps that we went to with some friends up in North Carolina, uh, they have this massive swing, all right? So imagine this, like, it's like they have at the fairs. Anyway, I won't comment on swings at fairs. They scare me too. This swing at Young Life scare me. Here's what they do. You sit on this swing that looks like, I don't know, a little bench in a park, and then they pull you hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet up in the air. And then they pull you hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet up in the air, and then they let the swing go. And you go, and below you, there's nothing but pine tree tops and your mom trying to take a picture, right? I was in line to take this swing. I hate heights, okay? This is about high enough for me right here on the stage. I'm sitting there under this swing, and I'm watching it, and I'm getting closer to it, and I'm watching it, and I'm, getting cl- and I'm thinking, I do not want this to be part of my story. I do not want to get on that swing. I do not like sitting here freaking out because of the swing. I don't want to have this experience anymore. I don't want to have that experience. So you know what I did? I got out of line because I didn't want anything to do with it. Now, this is a bad parenting moment because we were there with some very good friends of ours from Savannah and one of the dads and my daughter, and we were all going to go on the swing together. And so what I did is I said, man, I do not want this to be part of my story. I do not want to experience this swing. I am getting out of line. Paul, you take my daughter in the swing because I'm going to be down here too scared to do it, right? I abandoned my daughter to go on this swing without me. But I didn't want to be part of it, right? And here's the reality. There's trials in our lives as we sit there under it and we look at it 
We're like, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want that to be part of my story. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to experience it. I want to get out of line so that I don't have to go through it. And what James knows about me and what James knows about you, whether you believe in Jesus or not, this is wisdom because it's true. What James knows about me and James knows about you is when we want to get out of line to avoid the trial, many times we turn, like the awesome dude in the front said, to sin. We turn to something sinful to try to either fix it or... We turn to something sinful to try to escape it. Because just for 20 minutes, we don't want to feel it. And so we turn to something really unhealthy and really unhelpful to get out from it. And what James is saying is, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that because it doesn't honor God. And don't do that because not only does it not honor God, but 97% of the time... It's only going to make it worse for you. We try to fix the trial through sin by lying, by stealing, by cheating, by embezzling, by doing whatever. We try to escape the trial through a whole list of things that aren't healthy or productive. And here's what James says for people who believe the right things. Here's the way you do the right thing in a trial. Fourth way to navigate a trial, do not turn to sin to try to fix or to try to escape the trial. And there's some awesome encouragement we'll been to, but we'll get to in a second. But have you ever been here? Have you ever been there? Where it's like, man, I'm so tired of looking at this thing that's causing me stress. I'm so tired of just being stuck in this line of this thing that's causing me stress, and I just don't want to go through it. I want to stop it. I want it to go away, or I don't want to think about it for a few minutes. And have you ever made some choices to try to fix or escape that weren't helpful, are you here today? And that's the crossroad that you find yourself in. Because you have been staring at that ceiling fan because there's something so stressful going on and you are just one moment away from trying to escape it or going back to escape it in a way that's not healthy. And what James is saying and what Jesus is saying is don't do it. Don't do it. Because it's not best for you. Because it's probably not going to work out for you. Because it's only going to make it worse. And then you're going to look back at that and think, why did I ever get myself into this position? There's a positive motivation here that James gives in verse 12. Verse 12 is going to pop up on the screen, I think. And this is what he says. Okay, don't give into it, but blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Here's what he's saying. Hey, if you don't sin, if you don't give up, if you don't give into it, man, you're blessed and you're going to receive the crown of life. And this is not like some, the Burger King crown that that dude wears, right? It's not like the little thing in the opening credits of the Netflix show, The Crown. This is like, think about like the Greek dealios where they run the race and they put the little olive thing on them, right? It's, it's something that's given to someone who wins it. And what James is saying is, man, if you persevere, if you stand up, there's something coming for you. Do you remember when you were a little kid? For some of you, it's going to be a little bit ways back, but you can get there, right? Remember when you were a little kid and you would go to the dentist, you would go to the doctor, 
and there'd be some really unpleasant thing you'd have to do. And when you came out, your mom or dad or grandma or whoever would be like paying the bill and making the next appointment. And some little receptionist would come up to you and said, you did such a good job today. Do you want to get something out of the prize bucket? I love the prize bucket. We should have prize buckets for adults, right? I love the prize bucket. I can still remember some random, I don't know, orthodontist in Fairfield back in the 70s. And I can literally remember the yellow room where I came in the prize bucket. And there were Smarties and there were Blow Pops and there were Star Wars action figures. Man, I love me some Star Wars action figures. Right? Nothing better than getting Luke Skywalker after you just got your tooth yanked out as a six-year-old. Here's what James is saying. Man, there's something great waiting for you. And it's so much better than a Star Wars toy out of the bucket at a receptionist's desk in a doctor's office. And if and for those who are able to the strength of the spirit not to give in to the sin as a way to escape the trial. Man, when you see God and you see Jesus, he's going to say to you, well done. That was tough. But you trusted me, you depended on me, you didn't give in to sin. And so here's the prize, because you did a great job in a very hard moment. Encouragement, blessing for those who persevere under trials. And last thing that takes two seconds, because we get to baptize some people in a minute, which is going to be awesome. James ends this last point by saying this. And do not be deceived. My beloved brethren, in verse 16, every good and gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own he brought us forth by the word of truth that will be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here's what he's saying in this next verse, right? Remember, God gives good things. Every perfect gift is from God. And there's this line about navig- uh, of, of no variation of shadow due to change. That's talking about the moon, the different phases of the moon. Last night, after, or the other night after I studied this, I looked out and the moon was looking one way. In a month, it's going to look different. There's going to be a crescent moon and a gibbous, waxing, waning something moon, right? The moon is always changing. But what James is saying is, but God never changes. And he is good and he is kind And when the floor has dropped out from under you and you're trying to figure out what to think and what to do, do not let your hard circumstances cause you to forget God's goodness. We pinged off this a little bit in one of the songs and there's this old hymn that some of you may know, some of you may never heard of, that kind of comes out of this verse. It says, great is thy faithfulness, O Lord my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassion, thy fail not, as thou have been, there forever will be. There is a God who knows us and loves us and cares for us. And no matter what our circumstances are shouting, what James wants them to remember is that God never changes. And when everything around you has changed and shifted, don't you dare forget what has never changed or shifted. His goodness and his kindness and his love. Next week, we're going to move out of trials because James does. We're going to move into kind of this next topic that James talks about that these Christians were facing. Not a trial, but another 
way of conducting themselves that he wanted them to do. And today we're going to end by celebrating, man, people who are about to get wet in this pool because what they want you to know about is just how James ended God's goodness. Right, from all different ages and all different stages and all different stories, what they are here to do is to get wet in front of a bunch of people they probably don't even know because as you're going to hear in a minute, because God's been good to them and God's been kind to them. And the most significant way in which he's been kind and good to them is through the person of Jesus who died and was punished in our place instead of us so that we never would have been have to be punished for God so that we can have hope that if received that through faith, not by trying harder, man, that there are amazing things that God has in store for us and that this is not the end of the story. Right there, I used to be able to f- f- throw it up. Right? You know what that is? I already said it. It is trumble tap water, right? What, what the Bible teaches, we believe here, there is nothing amazing about that water except all the fluoride and chemicals that are in it, right? This water doesn't do anything to anybody who's about to be baptized. What this is, is a symbol, right? This wedding ring, when I put it on, it did, I am not unmarried now. If I put this on any single person in the room, it wouldn't make them married, right? What makes me married are my vows before the dude who pronounced me. This is just a symbol of what the reality is. This baptism, getting wet in a minute, isn't going to make them a Christian or forgiven by Jesus, but what it is going to do is be a symbol that that's what they are. And it's a symbol that they're so excited to be part of this church community. And they're so excited for you to hear what Jesus has done. And so we got videos, then we got water splashing, and then we got hooping and hollering, and it's going to be awesome. So uh, check out these videos, and then let's celebrate what God's doing in these guys' life.